somebody has worked black magic on me. And of course, my American enlightenment mind says, no, that doesn't happen in today's world. Hey, everybody, welcome to episode 11 of What in the World. My name is Jake Lee, and I am your host of this podcast where we talk about what God is doing both locally and around the globe. So, last week, we started a conversation with Nate and Don Kruger, who have been Elmbrook field workers for 40 years. And we got to hear about their story and how they both felt this call to mission in actually very differing ways. Nate really facing eternity or having to stare eternity in the face for really the first time, which compelled him to feel like he needed to do something that mattered eternally. And Dawn, while she was younger, feeling this call through Harvest Fest. And speaking of Harvest Fest, our opening weekend is approaching really fast. That's going to be the weekend of the 24th and the 25th. And besides having a really great opening speaker, uh, Jenny Ellefson, we also are going to be highlighting an organization that Elmbrook has a long history with, OMF International, which used to be called China Inland Mission that was started by Hudson Taylor, which just celebrated its 150th year anniversary and we're going to be highlighting a few of those field workers and actually farther into this podcast I'm going to do a different segment where I dive more into the history of that organization but what we have in front of us this week we're going to continue the conversation with Nate and Don Kruger and this week we're going to talk about indigenization and really letting the local people take charge of the translation work and own a lot of the heavy lifting but also how the gospel in the bible really needs to be viewed from a multicultural lens because we approach scripture with a narrow focus and I'm not going to dive into that too much because we talk about that a lot in this episode and it's Something I'm just really passionate about, so I'm really excited for you to hear about it. Before we dive into that, I wanted to remind everyone to rate this podcast, comment, and especially share with people that you think would be encouraged by listening to it. And finally, before we dive into the main segment, I have a cultural blunder story for you. So right before I was hired at Elmbrook, Laura and I actually had just moved to China. This is also pre-child for us. And we were teaching at a university teaching spoken English. And I remember when we first started off our classes, we wanted to introduce ourselves. We thought it'd be a good chance for the students to practice some of the words that they had learned in previous classes because Chinese students know tons of English. They just don't speak it. And so we wanted to use this opportunity to talk about our families, words we knew they knew, mother, father, brother, sister, niece, and nephew. And so we introduced our families. Fast forward throughout the year, we're teaching these students. And at the very end of the year, we had gotten to know these students. They felt more comfortable asking us more personal questions and we said do you have any questions for us and one of the students raised her hand and I think this actually happened multiple times and said do you miss your baby and we were confused we were like wait do we miss our baby we we don't have a baby and they're like yeah the first day in class you showed us a picture of your baby is you do you miss your baby who's back in America with your parents and both of us were floored and really were confused at what was going on. And after giving it some thought, we realized that on the beginning of class, that first day when we had shown the pictures of our family with the students who barely knew us and were too uncomfortable uh, with us at this point to really ask questions, 
they thought our nephew was our baby. And then from that point onward, throughout the year, they were being respectful for, to me and Laura. They weren't asking questions that could potentially make us uncomfortable. And so they never clarified with us that why didn't Jake and Laura talk about their baby? Don't they miss him? Their babies with their parents? Because this is a common practice in China. Many parents, because they need to work and they need to make income, and they want to make sure their kid has a stable adult with them, they leave their child back with the grandparents who then take care of the child while the parent is away making money. And this is obviously, it happens in America, but much less common. And for Laura and I, we weren't in that situation. We didn't have a kid. And so it wasn't even crossing our minds that this could be a thought running through our students' minds. And so at the very end, when we finally opened the door up for whatever questions they want, and they felt comfortable enough to ask them, they were like, don't you miss your baby? So Laura and I obviously made a big blunder here. We should have been more careful in the beginning when our students were un too uncomfortable to ask questions about our lives that might embarrass us. And we also should have realized that these students might jump to that conclusion because it's a more common practice in many Chinese families. So that is another example of a cultural blunder. Now let's jump back into our conversation with Nate and Don Kruger and talk about how is translation work happening today? Give a little more perspective to the, to the task itself. Today is different from when we started Wycliffe as well. The ways in which translation is happening today is, is happening much more through local language speakers. So translation is not the foreign missionary coming to the field, learning the language and rewriting the Bible into that language as much that still happens in some places but more and more it's it's a a foreigner perhaps coming in and offering training to local speakers and working together in consultation with local speakers and the local church and spiritual leaders christian leaders in the community who can give insight into the interpretations of scriptures that connect with the local people and through that local group the bible gets translated into something that's very usable and relates well to the culture and language of the people i really like that fact that you're explaining that because when i've been talking to people kind of all over the globe who are involved in mission that is a very common trend we're seeing which one it should be happening because that is the direction it's supposed to go in, that you should be seeing other nations stepping up and also seeing indigenous leadership rise up and them taking the reins. That's a very healthy thing. I mean, even biblically speaking, when you're looking at scripture, you see Paul coming in. Yes, he's advising and stuff, but it's really the local people who are taking over and leading the charge. And that's what we need to see. So it's really cool to hear you say that. And also that they're the ones now doing the translation work a lot of the heavy lifting. I mean, obviously there's still places where you have tribes that have no outside influence. And so that makes sense that someone who doesn't know them has to go in. But in a lot of other areas, let the local leadership do it. There are committees that have to be formed, you know, of the local people, as well as um, experts in exegesis and, and all these other and linguistics and all that other on the committee so that you have a translation that's worth, you know, being able to publish. Well, yeah, I mean, you're talking about the word of God here. You're talking about in the beginning, we talked about what's eternal. 
human souls and the word of God, like you don't want to treat the word of God lightly. Like when you're translating it, you don't want to just paste it in Google Translate and say go. Like you want to do a good job. Exactly. It has to speak to the people and it has to um, resonate with where, you know, with their life environment and worldview. One other aspect of Bible translation in terms of working with local language speakers and local Christian leaders to develop the, the translation of the scriptures. One other aspect that, that that contributes to is an indigenizing theology. Something that I studied, I just finished a master's degree in, theolo- in missiology a couple of years ago. And one of the studies that I found fascinating in my program was what I call plural theologies, but that gets me in trouble. It's not plural theology so much as it's it's cultural understandings of God that can be different from different perspectives. And, and one, of the, one of the illustrations I like to use for that is, you know, so many people use the picture of um, people standing around an elephant and everybody's touching the elephant and describing it. And then we're saying, yeah, but in the end, we're all, you know, one says the tusks are hard or the tail is, is um, you know, I don't know, scratchy or the skin is rough or whatever, but it's all the elephant. And I, my contention is, God isn't an elephant. He's an elephant and a pelican and a hummingbird and the northern lights. And he's a violet and, and a blade of grass. God is so complex that there's no way one language or one culture could ever describe and contain the understanding of who God is and then translate and transfer all that theology to another culture. People experience God within the context of where they live and how they their community, their social context, their environment, et cetera. And so we have to allow these, these communities and language groups around the world to be able to formulate a theology from scripture that fits with their worldview. So the beauty of translation today is that it becomes much more indigenized. Honestly, I love that because when I look at, I mean, I'm actually working on my seminary degree now too, and I'm trying to bend it toward either cultural or missiology is my goal. But when you're looking at theology we study, we study basic theology, right? And you can take classes on Asian theology, African theology. And technically, we're looking through a very narrow lens on who God is. And what makes Christianity different, it's not just like every religion knows God because God chose to come in the person of Jesus, live, die on a cross, and resurrect. So that's something that we can latch onto, that God has chosen to reveal himself in this way through his word. But when you're talking about understanding an infinite being, I liked how you described that because my Western, especially Western American viewpoint— and white on top of that, that's very narrow. And that's looking at a very small subset of theology where God, to be understood, we need every tribe, tongue, and nation. That's the reason why we're supposed to pursue that. And so, yeah, I really think that's an important point to bring up. And I love that you brought that up for another reason for translation and the reason why we need to do it. Because it helps us have a more expanded view of God, I guess is the word I'd use. Exactly. And that is something that contributes to the wonder of the global church, which is the complex body of Christ. You know, we talk about the body of Christ having different parts and all, but we don't think about that in terms of that means that an African theology might be the right hand or the left hand and Asian theology would be the right hand. Let me get it right. (laughs) But but the idea is (laughs) 
we need to have all these different theologies together to complete the global body of Christ, the church. And like what you said, that it expands our own wonderment and our own awe of who God is as we learn how others see him. And it expands worship. It expands the potential until we get to the day around the throne, as Revelation 7, 9 says, that every tribe and tongue and people and nation will be around the throne. Um, I was just thinking in terms of Bible translation, one of the questions that we often get is, you know, in today's globalized world, um, there are bubbling to the top just a handful of languages that become the language of international communication, the business languages of the world, languages of of United Nations, you know, processing, etc. And so why don't we just, and everybody outside of the few monolingual cultures left in the world, People are learning multiple languages, working in different environments, using a different language, you know, a language of education, a language of business, a language of whatever. Why don't we just make sure that everybody has access to a scripture that they're able to understand, be it in another language? The answer to that that we would bring is, first of all, God is relational and God is personal and God wants an intimate fellowship with his children. So we want to translate the Bible into the language that people speak around the dinner table or around, you know, when the children are out playing and the parents call them in or when they, when they go to the beach together or the language they dream in, because that's the most intimate personal place where God will meet them and be personal to them. But then also God is a God of diversity. When you look at creation, the creation account before Adam and Eve were created, God made fish, but he didn't make one fish and a bird and a animal. He made multiple species of things when he was creating because he's, he's a God of variety and of diversity. And he's, he's, he's exuberant in, in his joy and love for making more things and and filling the earth with all kinds of wonderments. Having all those languages around the throne isn't just a pragmatic thing, but it's a beautiful thing. It's 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 an expression. It's a reflection of the creative nature of God to say diversity yeah. is, is part of who you are. You find great joy in variety. So look at the variety of people around your throne and take great joy in that, God. Why in the world? In this part of the podcast, we go back over Elmbrook's mission history. But in this episode, we're going to go back even farther to 1832, when a man named Hudson Taylor was born. By the age of 17, Hudson Taylor had become a Christian. And shortly after, he felt the call in his life to go to China, specifically inland China. As Hudson Taylor began to travel to China and to grow and understand the Chinese people, he actually revolutionized how we do mission. Hudson Taylor realized that to reach people, missionaries need to identify with the culture of the people they want to reach. He said, let us in everything not sinful become like the Chinese. By all means, we may save some. This led to Hudson Taylor cutting his hair, changing the way he dressed, the way he ate, the way he talked, something that was not common of the time and actually looked down upon by many missionaries. And then we fast forward to 1865. Hudson Taylor set out a plea. We need workers to join in reaching the inland provinces of China. And this led to the creation of China Inland Mission. China Inland Mission began to grow. And by 1888, they had 294 missionaries in 14 provinces. 
But then the Boxer Uprising happened in China. Many missionaries and thousands of Chinese Christians were put to death. China Inland Mission lost 58 missionaries and 21 children. But during the rebellion, during that time frame, the number of people involved in China Inland Mission actually grew to 933. Then in the late 1940s, Mao Zedong came to power in China. And we turn to some recent writings by Jason Mandrake reflecting on this time. The Communist Party of China began expelling all foreign missionaries shortly after the triumph in 1948. It was a devastating development. The church needed the missionaries as much as ever after the destruction and suffering caused by the Japanese occupation of World War II. How would the church in China possibly survive? China Inland Mission and many other mission organizations were facing a question, what do we do now? So China Inland Mission scattered to new countries. They started movements all over Southeast Asia. But what about the Chinese church? If we look back to Jason Mandrake's writing, without missionary access, the global church increasingly prayed for China, especially for fellow Christians, suffering under the heavy hand of a state-sponsored atheism. Earnest intercession sustained across years and even decades was set up with little to no means of finding out what was going on with these prayers. But news began to trickle back that the Christianity was not, in fact, extinct in China. It had mostly been forced underground, and it had been ferociously persecuted. But it had grown beyond all expectations. So at this point, we expected the church to die in China, but instead it grew under persecution. And organizations, especially China Inland Mission, when they were kicked out of the country they started, scattered and grew in new countries which eventually led to China Inland Mission changing to OMF International. And now fast forward to today. OMF International now has over 1,400 workers in over 40 nations. And Elmbrook is privileged in this Harvest Fest of 2020 to have our three fieldworker units who work with OMF International and are part of this legacy join us for Harvest Fest. And we've had other fieldworkers that have gone before them Elmbrook was able to participate in this legacy that started in 1832 with Hudson Taylor. We are privileged to be part of a mission organization that pioneered the way for so many future missionaries. This has been One in the World. So what I want to run with now, actually, as you we've been talking, I've been trying to think of what stories I'd like to hear from you. Off of these two topics, one question I have is, you talk about other cultures and helping us expand our view of God and awe of him. Do you guys have any stories of you running into that, an instance of you talking to a friend, a coworker, or um, another Bible translator and hearing about some aspect of God that kind of opened your eyes a little? One thing that I realized when I was first learning about um, diverse theologies, indigenized theologies. I was working in Asia at the time. And one of the things I remember is talking with a Korean colleague and she was saying, you know, you Americans emphasize God is love. God's your buddy. God's there for you. God's, you know, your power mate and he's going to help you through this. And, and all she said in our culture in Korea, it's a very hierarchical culture. It's not as independent as yours. And so you are independent people who get a friend to come alongside you and coming alongside is a big missional term. She said, we in Korea are hierarchical and 
we are sometimes appalled at how casually you speak about God. We hold him in such reverence as the top of our whole hierarchical social structure. And she demonstrated this, or she pointed it out to me when we would have team meetings, because I was the director of communication, and I had Korean, Japanese, Filipino, Chinese, Hong Kong, Singapore, Malay people on my team. And so we would have these team meetings and I would say, gee, guys, I think we should do this. What do you think? And they'd all go, yep, okay, let's do it. When do we start? And I'd say, well, what do you think? And they'd say, it's a great idea, great idea. Well, come to find out, of course, in, in their culture, they would never disagree with their boss and particularly in a group context in front of anybody else. They would never dishonor me by disagreeing with anything I said in a meeting. And I had to learn how to open conversations in meetings to get input from them without overstepping their cultural boundaries. And so that's kind of the same with this Korean woman talking to me about God and saying, we in Korea hold him in such honor and respect. He is the sovereign Lord, the creator and owner of all of creation. And we are the humble people who kneel and bow before him. That's how we relate to God. Yeah, that's one kind of a cultural difference. Another one that came to mind just as you were talking was when we were in Papua New Guinea, early in our years in Papua New Guinea, we were in the children's home. We had a bunch of teenagers living with us. Their parents were translators in the village and the kids lived with us during the school year. And so we had 12 or 15 teenagers living with us and we had hired a Papua New Guinean woman to help at the house, um, to help me with the chores around the house. We became very good friends. One time she became very, very sick, didn't show up to work for a few days she was in the village and the village was within walking distance. And so I went to see her in the village while she was in her, this was back in the eighties and they did live in bamboo huts on built on the dirt. So she was laying on a mat on a bamboo platform in her home. And I remember talking to her and saying, what is it? What do you think is going on? And she said, honestly, Dawn, I think somebody has worked black magic on me. And of course my American enlightenment mind says, now, if that doesn't happen in today's world, you know, there must be a medical reason for how you're feeling. And so I would try to downplay that. And she goes, no, I know you Americans don't believe in it, but black magic is real and it surrounds us. And I said, well, what are you going to do? And she said, well, the shaman in the village wants to come to our house and do a ritual over me to eliminate this and to help me get better. She said, but I'm a Christian and I will not let him come into my house. And she really had to fight against the village system because of wow. that, because they were really saying, you know, you're going to die if you don't do this. this. Whoever put this black magic on you has power over you now, and you're going to die unless you let the shaman come in and eradicate this. She and I prayed together that day. The next day when I was talking with her, she said, no, I'm staying strong. I am not going to, she didn't get better right away. I'm not going to give in. I'm not going to give in. Well, of course, eventually she did heal. She did get better. And that was a testimony to the people that the power of God was greater than the power of the black magic. But for me, it was an eye opener to say, wow, I think there's a whole lot going on out there in the world that we and my, you know, I grew up in Wisconsin, such a sheltered little life and uh, had no idea. I believe God talks to people around the world through dreams and visions. And we kind of don't don't follow that sort of a theological yep. track here. I think God is a God of miracles. And because we 
are so scientific in our enlightened understanding of life. We don't see the miracles that God does, and it's too bad. I think we miss out on a lot. Well, I really appreciate those stories. I mean, they both obviously highlight different aspects of things that we see in Scripture, but they're ones that, like you said, in an enlightened or a Western theology, they're ones that maybe get talked about less or not at all, potentially. You see those very clearly. And so like, it's good to have people around you like that who are seeing things and seeing God and the Scriptures a little differently to help push you to look into things maybe you wouldn't have previously. So Don, did you have any other stories related to what we're talking about that you'd like to share? Jake, it's funny because when I think of story, I think of a, a main character and a plot, you know, a high point and a, and a resolution. Um, but in, in the context of what we're talking about, I can talk about how I've been influenced by the theologies of the people that I've lived among. Um, what comes to mind is the understanding of the three worldviews um, that has come out and the uh, three worldviews that missionaries need to be aware of, or the three cultural worldviews that missionaries need to be aware of, are the guilt and forgiveness, shame and honor culture, and the fear and power culture. We in our individualistic society are part of the guilt and forgiveness, you know, or, or guilt and, and restoration or whatever. If you're guilty of something, you have to pay the price and then you're you're given and you can move on. And so our salvation message is we are sinners. Christ died for our sin. God loves you. And he wants you to be restored into fellowship, forgiven for your sins and live with God forever. That works really well in our society. When we were in Papua New Guinea, there are fear and power society. So the idea of being guilty and needing to be forgiven, while that is true of the gospel, that's not the gospel message that really penetrates their heart. What penetrates their heart is God is the creator and therefore sovereign Lord over all of creation. That means he is more powerful than the spirits that you encounter. I think we um, Western people have talked ourselves out of that, but I think we are not aware of what's going on behind the veil in the spirit world. Papua New Guineans are very sensitive to the spirit world, and, and so they see spirits in the rivers and the rocks and the gardens and the trees and surrounding them, and, and they do... Um, sort of tap into that spirit power with their black magic and all. So I believe that really exists in that culture and their cultural worldview is shaped around that. So the gospel message for them is God is the most powerful spirit and he is here not just to take you to heaven one day. He is here to be a part of your life and to protect you and care for you. He loves you and he will care for you in the context of the world in which you live where you live in fear of these other spirits, where true love is there, it casts out fear. You can live without the fear because God is more powerful. So their message, their their gospel message has to be shaped differently. And then, of course, we lived in Asia and worked with a lot of Asians who are more of the shame, honor culture worldview. And so that has to do a lot more with community. That has a lot more to do with my performance reflects on my family name, reflects on my community, reflects on the people with whom I associate. Nobody is an nobody's an island. And you're not going to be judged personally for the things that you do. Your whole community will have to absorb the impact of what you do because they're community-oriented people. And from that, I learned more about 
the community of being the church, the body of Christ, and how I can't, I don't, you know, when I read the Bible, when I read Matthew 5, 6, and 7, or when I read even, even Philippians 2, that's one of my favorites to say, you know, we take Philippians 2 and say, you should be humble as Christ was humble and all. But Paul speaks before that and says, if there's any consolation in all this, make my joy complete by being one-minded, one spirit. He's talking about community together. We live as the community of God in our activities. Humility is a relational thing. I need to be humble because that reflects well on Christ and his bride. And so I learned a lot from my Asian colleagues about my responsibility as a member of the body of Christ to live according to God's rules for the good of the church, not just because I should do that. So those are things that I learned from my experience overseas. And that's kind of how the different cultures interpret the same scriptures a little differently, but we need each other to be able to grow in our, I don't know, our collective response to and responsibility to Christ and his church. Personally, I just really love talking about this and the idea that to really understand uh, theology correctly, to understand God correctly, honestly, to understand the gospel correctly, we need to have this multifaceted view. One, it's bigger than any of us can ever fully comprehend, but you need to bring other cultures and viewpoints into the mix to start to understand that there's different ways to look at it. It's kind of like a diamond, just looking at it from one perspective. You need to look at it from multiple perspectives, top, bottom, left, right, front, back. Otherwise you don't get the full picture of what you're looking at. And it's the same thing you're talking about. Like you can look at a verse in scripture that says something. And I, as a Westerner can look at it from a guilt and shame lens. And then this is what it says. But then that same verse you apply to a fear power culture, or honor, shame, and they're getting something completely different. And neither is really wrong because the scripture was written so it could cross cultures. The gospel can transcend cultures because it doesn't fit into just one. Yes, it was written in a specific time and place and we need to look at that, but that culture was actually honor and shame from what I remember. So technically it's not even our Western culture. <laughs> exactly, but we've so personalized it. And of course in English, the... the um, pronoun you is both singular and plural. So we often singularize that. But I think the intent was more community you, you the bride of Christ, you the body of Christ, um, you the community of believers in this context. Yeah. So you're telling me that a proper translation of the English Bible should say y'all. So we should all get Southern. Exactly. Exactly. There you go. You y'all. Don't take our word for it because we're not translated. Yeah. <laughs> yes. That's okay. So don't apply that to every you in scripture. But that being said, much of scripture was originally written in a culture that was community-based, that was more honor shame of a culture and so we need to be careful when we apply our Western viewpoints on culture, which is an important viewpoint because much of the Bible speaks to that. But to just say it only fits into our view is not giving scripture the depth it deserves. 
Hey everyone, thank you so much again for tuning into this episode of What in the World. Like I've said in previous episodes, I absolutely love doing this. I love having these conversations and Nate and Don Kruger are also another example of that. Um, I love their heart. I love this topic of how we need to have a wider view of scripture and of the Bible and of the gospel and why we need other cultures to see that. So the plan moving forward is we have one more part of our conversation with Nate and Don Kruger. And this last one is going to get a little bit more into the different types of works that go into translation. And really, we're focusing more so on how it's much broader than just Bible translation by itself. And we're going to dive into that conversation to wrap this up. Yeah, the only thing I want to remind you guys is Harvest Fest is going to be probably right after this releases. So make sure you check it out. We're going to have registration links on our Facebook page. We're going to have it on our website. I just really want to encourage you to dive into as much as you can with Harvest Fest, especially in a time like we're in right now in a worldwide pandemic where there are political tensions and there is just so much going on. And we as the church cannot forget that we are called to live a life on mission. And that's where we find our purpose, being on mission with God. Yeah, I get to share stories about how we've done that previously, but we don't want that legacy to stop. We need to continue pressing onward, continue trying to expand the kingdom of God and being part of his work of restoration here and around the globe. So I hope you guys enjoyed this. I'll be talking to you next time on What in the World.